This is Questionable History with two snarky sisters. I'm Amy. And I'm Beth. This is a podcast about books, specifically historical romances. We dive deep into characters and plot to discuss what works well and what is just, well, questionable. Spoilers are coming, so if you want to read the book first, pause now and come back when you're ready. We read the books so you don't have to. Let's get started. Today we're talking about the book The Sugar Rose by Susan Carroll. Published in 1987, it has 3.63 out of 5 stars on Goodreads out of about 200 ratings. Our synopsis comes from the back of the paperback edition, uh, Fawcett Books paperback. It says, Aurelia Sinclair felt utter delight with the prearranged proposal of her childhood sweetheart, Lord Justin Spencer. Unfortunately, the handsome Justin was less than ardent in return. But if the fastidious Everard Ramsay could help Aurelia with her wardrobe and sweet tooth, surely his friend Justin would take notice. Yet when the slender and radiant Aurelia emerged from her cocoon, Everard began to wish Justin far away, the better to have his creation all to himself. So, just real quick, why do they gotta name their characters Everard instead of Edward? And Aurelia instead of just like Aurora or Amelia or something yeah. that was a little bit more common. I mean, you gave the other person Justin. Right? That's true. I never heard that connection. Because usually it feels like when authors are going to go for the more... Avant-garde. Or... Yes. Out there names. It's going to be everybody has yeah. just kind of an they odd just go name. all in. Yeah. Yeah. And Justin. And, and I was kind of like, Justin seemed kind of modern. I wouldn't have associated right. it with a Regency yeah. style name. James or John, sure. But like Justin. Yeah. Sometimes I do that. Was that really a name back then? Right. Is there a way to check like old census records? Was that a thing? <laughs> there is, isn't there? Probably if you like research. I do not. So I just wonder <laughs> and then move on. Someone else life. check that out and email us at snarkysisterspodcast at gmail.com. First person to email us the correct answer to that question wins. But then you'd have to do research to find out if it's the correct answer. Oh. So it's just a well, little slippery. First person to bother to email us anything. <laughs> From our gets a free dedicated listeners. By me. <laughs> this is again a paperback version. It's falling apart a little bit in front of me, and I've got lots of flags. If you hear crinkles, that's me trying to find my notes in my we're, book. We're going old school here, right? We're going back to our roots. Our roots. It's actually, oh, which I just had a memory of mom who would rip out. Oh my goodness. The page when she was done with it. Our beloved mother who passed away this last year would love to read paperback novels in the tub. And there's a really funny story. Memory to me, it's funny because it wasn't my book, but Amy loaned her a book once. One of my favorites. And when Amy went to retrieve it, there was no book left because apparently our mom would get tired of balancing the entire paperback. And mind you, paperbacks, they're like, what, 300 pages? So she would finish a section and just tear it off and like throw it away and then keep reading and her book would get smaller and smaller as she went through the book. Yeah, the librarian in me died a little bit. Did she ever replace it? She did. Okay, good. That's so funny. On the other hand, mine could easily be torn up. And I'm like, where's my packing tape? I got to put this back together. Okay. So this book is actually was printed as a double feature, if you will. Brighton Road, which we did last time, and The Sugar Rose are in the same paperback. So The Sugar Rose. There's a lot about this book that I love and a lot of things that I had forgotten how much I hate. <laughs> or maybe I didn't bother me when I was a teenager, exactly. but as an That's adult I feel reading it, it now, I'm a like, A different perspective hmm. in my life. 
So we're going to go a little bit chronologically through the book because that works better when you have a paper copy of the book. Um, And then Amy and I will just jump in with things that struck us. So one of the first things I love about this introduction to Aurelia, when the book starts, Aurelia is waiting in, you know, in the drawing room for Justin to come over because he's coming over to propose, finally. Like, they grew up together. They refer to each other as, like, best buds since they were kids. They would romp together, adjoining estates, that sort of idea, right? And Aurelia is an orphan. Both of her parents have died. And so she's essentially living in this manor house she inherited by herself with her servants and a companion whose name is Effie, um, an old, you know, an elderly lady that lived with her. And I just love this introduction to Aurelia because it says she hears footsteps coming on the marble landing. And it says quickly she sat down upon the high backed red velvet sofa, dragging her embroidery frame from her work basket in an attempt to appear as if nothing occupied her mind except for the <laughs> altar cloth she stitched to donate to the church. <laughs> and it just cracks me up because I'm just like, the, the from the very beginning, you get the sense that she's a different sort of girl. Like, she's not into the embroidery yeah. and the calm, peaceful things. And so she's like, oh, crap, I got to look like a nice feminine But demure. she's still willing to put in the effort yeah, to at least peer. She cares enough about other people's opinions that she's going to at least put forth that image of domestic, domestic, right? domestic. Domesticity? Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. So so basically Justin arrives and it's like, oh yay, he's finally here. And then right behind him is his friend, Mr. Everard Ramsey. And so you can almost imagine Aurelia literally like sits up like, Justin, oh, also his friend. It just cracks me up because from the very beginning, Everard is just kind of like, hey, I met this girl at a party. She was kind of intriguing. I thought she was interesting. He references later in the book that her eyes had struck him. Yeah. And so he was just like, oh, she was kind of interesting. I'd be glad to get to know her a little bit better. So they get there, and um, Aurelia's mad, as you might recall. And she's basically just like kind of being terse with Everard. And um, she invites Justin to sit down, but Everard just keeps wandering around the room. And finally she gets fed up, and she's kind of like... And why are you just walking around the room? And he's like, well, technically you never invited me to sit. That was a beautiful, nice set down. Yes. Where she's all on her high horse of like, how dare you interrupt this proposal and then be so rude. And he he very nicely says, well, it's kind of on you, lady. (laughs) Right. And then the other thing I think is important to point out about Everard is we know from the beginning here that he... Um, uses a, a quizzing glass. Yeah, yes. a quizzing glass. And so, as I understand, it was almost like a monocle or half of an opera glass type of thing with right. one lens usually on a stick, and they could kind of hold it in front of their eye. And theoretically, it would help you see better, but we get the impression that Everard uses it almost as like a lady might use a fan. It's something he carries, and he uses it because he's a bit of a dandy. He dresses really well, but also he has kind of a, how would you call it? Like a stern, but not mean. He's kind of stoic. Aloof. He's re- stoic. Yeah. yeah. Aloof is a good phrase. Yeah. I get the impression it might come from shyness more than being stuck up. Yeah. He doesn't mean to come across this way, but it's how people perceive him because he's not an effervescent person. He doesn't yeah. wear his emotions on his sleeve. And he's very polite, but he won't yeah. necessarily, like, he'll give people Reserved. A, reserved, yeah. yeah. He'll give people a set down if he needs to, but he's not going to go out of his way to be mean. No. He essentially lives in his in his mind and does his thing, and, and he doesn't care about you yeah. unless you come into a reason why he has to. Yeah, and the quizzing glass, you know, she almost takes offense because it appears that he's using it to, like, inspect her. And I get the impression, like, because he does it with everything, that it's just kind of his way of taking in the world around him. 
I think it buys him a minute yeah. to evaluate and decide how he wants to proceed. I also thought it was a good impression of him to kind of get to know him in the beginning because he seems so stern and stiff-necked, she calls him at one point. So one of the funny things about Everard is that when he comes into the room and Aurelia neglects to ask him to sit down, there's actually like multiple pages of him kind of meandering about the room, looks at things, touches things, and it makes me chuckle because I think that in part he's trying to like subtly bring attention to himself to be yeah. like, hey, I'm Remember still me? here. Can yeah. I sit down too? But he won't just say, can I please be seated? He's yeah. waiting. And you get a sense that he he teases her a little bit and he, he pokes at her a little bit. Um, and I, I wonder if it was uncouth to ask yourself mm, as a gentleman, maybe like so. you literally had to wait because you didn't want to be presumptuous, you know? And so maybe it, it was more that he's like, I can't say anything. Right. Cause she didn't say, Oh, won't you please be seated in a Broadway? She literally said to Justin, she's like, Justin, please be seated. Yeah. And so that's why Everard is stuck just meandering around. Yeah. Because Everard doesn't realize he's interrupting a proposal not he doesn't yet know. okay He's, he thinks they're just there to hang out for a minute yeah because if he had realized he would have been like oh my goodness i'm gonna exit and he was tasked with returning something to her from the dinner That's party right. she left like her a fan or something yeah i love the way this book starts the very yeah. the, the meet cute the opening i really love that opening scene you get the impression that the one meeting that they've had because at this point i really had just met everard like the night before at a dinner party or something you get the impression that they needle each other. There's there's some sort of attraction between the two of them that she noticed him, right? She noticed him watching everything through his quizzing glass and things like that. And she's a little bit intrigued by him. But there's also an element of like, I don't know, spikiness between the two of them. <laughs> so, for example, she's um, talking to him about how he is always using that quizzing glass. And she basically is like, could you use it to stop looking at me? And look at something else, and she says something along the lines of, could I persuade you to level it at the carpet? I seem to have dropped one of my needles. <laughs> and then later she makes a co offhand comment about maybe he'll step on it, and then he'll find it or whatever. And so you get that sense that, although she's intrigued, there's something about him that rubs her the wrong way, and not in a bad way, just mm -mm. in that way of, like, he's different than Justin. They he's different have, than the other guys. Yes, they have delightful banter yeah. um, between them. Um, because you, you get through the through their banter and their conversations that they actually have similar tastes and even the same sense of humor. And so, yeah, you see this stark difference between this are my interactions with this man who supposedly I love yeah, because I think I should love him because we've been engaged forever. So it would just be easy to love him. Yeah. And it's more brother sister as opposed to that, that sparkly like first attraction with someone who intrigued you. And so yeah. your banter is it's like so and tongue but intriguing. Yeah. yeah. Because later in the book, Aurelia is reflecting when she realizes, of course, that she loves Everard eventually. And she's like, she acknowledges to herself that she probably just, quote unquote, loved Justin because that was easy. Yeah. It she didn't it was stretch safe. her. Yeah. yeah. It's a safe way. To have to do that. So eventually, um, Justin is like, oh, yeah, I guess I should get around to what I came here for. And so he pulls out. He's trying to find the ring to pull out and and propose and poor Everard if you can imagine that he likes to be socially polite and 
and accurate and etiquette is like a big thing for him. He is mortified yeah. that he is suddenly thrust into this situation. And he's like, oh my gosh, I could just leave. And Justin's like, no, nah, we're all old friends. Just stay. And so, so I just, awkward. I'm vicariously mortified just imagining yeah. like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. Justin was like a lovable clodpole. Yes. Like I, I, he got away with way too much, but mm-hmm. she kind of let him oh, get away sure. with it. So he wasn't mean or spiteful. Exactly. He was just, this is someone I've been known I will marry my whole life. But to yeah. me, she's a sister. It's not yeah. romantic. I don't have to woo her. Yeah. So. And he, they're relatively young. I mean, I don't remember if they ever say the age, but let's say he's around 25-ish or something. Yeah. He's still in that stage of life where he wants to be young and be free. Yeah. And he's only proposing so at his this point. So his wild oats. Right? <laughs> He's only proposing at this point because his mom made him. Pressure. Essentially. Him. Yeah. It was like, it's time. It's been you three years to. or something. Yeah. yeah. You like, can't you make a real, you wait forever and things like that. And so um, I totally agree with your assessment of Justin, though, because he's an idiot and he's not mean hearted, but he's self centered. Yes. He's still immature. Yeah. And, and that kind of So he's insensitive, behavior. but he doesn't do it out of spite. No. Or because no. he thinks. Aurelia's ugly or not no. a good person. He just doesn't view her it's in a romantic way. Your baby way. sister or your cousin yeah. or someone that you've seen since they were some snotty nosed kid and you were the same. Yeah. But he just doesn't see her as romantically viable yes. at all. Yeah. And he's been to London and he just knows that there's like beautiful women there. And so you can get the sense that he wants fun. He just yes. wants to pursue fun. Yeah. Oh, there is a funny reflection. So Aurelia has no real illusions about Justin in the sense that she might not realize that he might go mess around with ladies in London, but fundamentally she knows he's immature and a little bit self-centered. And so she's reflecting like, um, maybe if Ramsey had not been present, Justin would have been more. And she's like, no, he probably would have done it in the same graceless way. Like that's Justin, you know? And I did like that, that it wasn't like she really thought he was a paragon of virtue or something. Right. She just knew him as realistically, yeah. as an obnoxious, you know, older brother, cousin-y type of yes. thing. But in her mind, she's convinced herself they, they're in love, or she loves or him. Or she loves him. Okay, so my favorite part in this opening thing, they do the proposal. Basically, Justin's like, well, that's done. Super awkward. I couldn't find the ring. I'll send it to you later. Let's go fishing or something. Yeah. My favorite bit is they get ready to leave. And um, despite all of this and the crazy social awkwardness, Aurelia has been faithfully trying to pretend to do embroidery over here in her lap. Well, she starts to stand up and realizes she has stitched her embroidery to her dress. (laughs) And so she starts to stand up, realizes, and is like, whoops. And like, well, you guys see yourselves out. You gentlemen know the way. I'll just wait here. And Justin, right? And Justin's like, all right, bye. Because he's so oblivious. He is. And Mr. Ramsey, though, is very attentive. And so he comes over and does a formal does a formal bow, and he brings th- something over to her. And what he drops in her lap is her scissors. And I thought it was so cute that he paid attention. He's like, oh, I see what happened yeah. over there. So he gives her a way to escape without bringing any real attention yes. to the accidental oops that she brought on herself. Yeah, that was really sweet because I got the impression he picked up the yarn as an excuse to exactly. get the scissors yeah. and then kisses her hand yeah. as a distraction. So so even her, so that even she won't be embarrassed him being like, here's your scissors, yeah. <laughs> wink, wink, you know? he's It's so subtle. But yeah. I think that summed him up in a nutshell. Yeah. That's Everard. She doesn't realize that he left the scissors until he's already left the room. And so it's a moment of like, oh, he's really thoughtful and attentive. There is an interesting reflection here where Everard does talk about their ages. And he says that he's 28, but 
He's two years older than Justin. And Everard says, why sometimes did it feel as if he were 50? Um, and I get the impression the that maturity he, difference. yeah, you can see he's more mature. And when he looks at Justin, he's kind of like that young whippersnapper or whatever. Sometimes it's like, why yeah. are you like that? You know, grow up a little bit more, dude. Do we hear about Everard's background? I, I can't remember if, if we find out why he might be as grown up and as mature as he is. Was he orphaned young? Did he have responsibilities early or do they not really go into that? I don't recall them specifically talking about it. He talks about being with his aunt whom he's visiting here in the country. That's why he's even here. And so what we do know about Everard is that he's broke. He has no money. <laughs> and essentially he had taken his minor inheritance from a grandparent and he had invested all of it into a shipping venture and the ship's name was the Albatross, which was really a funny, I think, literary moment because an albatross is the type of thing that weighs you down, weighs right? you down, right? And so all signs point towards this investment ship that he was sending with lightweight cottons and whatnot to Brazil. The all signs point to having been lost at sea, and so it looks really bad for him. He's got debts. He has no ship coming in. It looks like um, he's going to be destitute. And so he's basically rusticating to hide from creditors and right. stuff. Because otherwise they're going to throw him in debtor's prison if right. he's seen in London again. I do think they reference his dad, though. I think his dad might still You're be alive. Right. That's what it is. But his dad, something. not, I don't know if it's a strange, but his dad doesn't, oh, he had an older brother who had died. Yes. And he didn't live up to that brother in yeah. his dad's. Like his parents literally forgot him or would have. It was one of those situations they would have rather he died than yeah. Albert or whoever the brother was. There's a really sad... Hold on. Let me see if I... I remember now. Idea. And so, yeah, the dad was very negative about his investment and telling him it was a bad idea and doesn't believe in him or support. I can't remember the brother's name. I can't either. I want to say it was Albert. Or but Alfred or Alfred. something. Something with someone. an A. <laughs> A-L. <laughs> right? The thing that was really sad is someone, as, as they're grieving the death of this brother, some well-meaning friend comments to his parents and says something along the lines of, oh, yeah, well, at, at least, least you. you have this other surviving son. And they basically go silent, look at him, and burst into tears or whatever. Right, yeah. And it's like, Ouch, it very man. sad. Like, that is harsh, you yes. know? But I don't think that comes up until later, which might be why we're not remembering it at this point yet. I think it's maybe some stuff that comes out yeah. about him later. So at this point, we're not sure why he's so reserved and so detached. And I'm wondering if the reason is because horrible parents. I don't know. Yeah, that one's hard to say. In that regard, we don't get a lot of backstory into Everard. Yeah. We get a little bit of an idea that things were tense at home. But most of the action focuses in the present. We don't get a lot of backstory about Aurelia yeah. really either. No. We don't get to hear like of their youthful hijinks and, with Justin yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It's all just like, hey, here's this who these people are. This is where they are at, at their point in their lives. Let's and, discuss. Yeah. There's one aspect of Justin's character, though, that strikes me as a little bit out of character, but, but kind of it makes sense. So Justin's 26, which is relatively mature, you'd think, right? Yeah. But apparently he's a horn dog because every time they can in this book, if there's a person with breasts, he's going to ogle Goggle, them. Yeah. He's going to look Goggle at them. them. So like <laughs> they've them. just left Aurelia's house and Everard's driving and he's pissed and he is driving fast. Like he's so he's angry driving if anyone out there's ever angry driven. <laughs> um, but basically they drive past like a buxom dairy maid and it talks about Lord Spencer's eyes nearly bulging from their sockets. And I'm like, really, dude? He's almost like a cartoon character. Kind Boing. of, yeah. And like if he was 
18 or 20 yeah. or 21 maybe but some about 26 i'm like really it's, it's not just, just a more like suave yeah maybe yeah i found that he's kind strange. of a dum-dum <laughs> he's a, a lovable idiot he reminds me of like a lovable dog right yeah, yeah. Funny enough, though, he's like, what's gotten into you, Ev? And Ev's like, um, I cannot believe you just put me in that embarrassing right. situation. Like he doesn't, he's, he doesn't even phase Justin. He has yeah. no idea why. No concept that that would have been inappropriate or strange or, or, or yeah. not kind to Aurelia yeah. to do a marriage proposal in front of a stranger. Like, yeah. he's just clueless. But one of the first scenes we get to see of the lovableness of Justin, too, were his friends. Because at times you think, why is Ev, Ev even, like, friends with this right. guy? Right, yeah. Justin, for so example, different. is like, hey... If you ever need money, I can loan you money. Yeah. And Everard's like, no, I couldn't. I yeah. couldn't do. I couldn't take a loan from a friend. Personally, I think that's kind of stupid. <laughs> right. I think if you're that desperate, it's jail or taking a loan. I think you'd take a loan to tide yes. you over in some way. Right. But whatever. I wasn't a gentleman in the Regency. <laughs> it seemed weird to me. Then they end up getting in a coaching accident. Nothing dramatic. Nobody's injured, but they break a wheel on his aunt's curricle or whatever. So Justin just sends a servant over with the ring. And I love this moment, too, because he sends this, like, gaudy, it's a big old ruby surrounded by diamonds. She describes it as big and awkward. And he sends a note that essentially says, like, I remember you particularly admired it. And she was like, oh, my gosh. Because she said something sarcastic. Yeah. Right? She makes an offhand comment about, it's memorable. I feel quite stunned looking at it or something. Right. And it was like he didn't hear the sarcasm yeah. in her voice. Because his he's very, Justin is actually very straightforward. Yeah. So to him, like, why would you be sarcastic? Yes. Just say you like it or he's you don't. He's a simple man. Simple. Yeah. I think of him as a simple country squire. Yes. Honestly. Yeah. With his hounds and his fishing. Yes. So what I think is funny about the ring is at the end where they eventually end up splitting amicably, she tries to give it back. And he's oh, like, no, yeah. no, keep it. I insist. She's like, no, seriously. I get like, she forces it into his hand because she just is like, I do not want this God awful ring. And that's part of what's so funny is because it was like a family heirloom yeah. from the and time of like, Henry VIII. And she's like, no, your mother is going to want you to take this back. And yeah. she has to literally force it. Okay, I guess. Yes. Why are you being so sensitive about <laughs> that part cracked me up. So another thing that I think is important to know about Aurelia is she's the type of character that doesn't seem to have a lot of backbone initially exactly. I get the impression yeah. she's led a kind of sheltered life, especially since her parents were gone. And her parents were kind of... Her mom was very critical yeah, I, of her. It I can't talks remember... About her, the, that's the voice in her head that exactly. is constantly telling her what she does wrong. And it never seems like her dad was more loving or whatever. No. Her dad's kind of absent in her memory, but her mom was very much, really, yeah. do it this way, and that's not how a, a lady, lady would behaves. never do this, and you're too fat. And... Right? And she dresses in a really, like, fussy manner. They yeah. describe when they're discussing her um, wardrobe, eventually, there's a really funny joke where... Ev basically says, um, she says, well, these are, th- what I, you know, these are fashionable. It has all the newest mode, whether it's lace or rosettes or whatever. And he eventually is like, they've been taking advantage of you. Whoever your seamstress is, is pawning off on you all of the furbelows and add-ons that they can because you don't know any better. Yeah. But they all look terrible, <laughs> which made me laugh. But in regards to her mom... There's a scene where someone comes to visit her. It's a guy named Augustus Snape, which is one of the funniest names to me. But this book came out before it's... Harry Potter, just so you know. Yeah, right. And I, it, to me, it's like, what is the, what is the best evil person? Exactly, name? exactly. Augustus. 
Not Snape. like he's going to murder you in the dark, mm-hmm. but he's going to be slimy or weaselly yeah. and he's going to do something to you that you're not going to like. Pretty much with that name, he was bound to be a sleaze. Right. Now, all of a sudden, though, I'm like, I kind of want to write a book where Augustus Snape is like a hero name because it is I actually true. like the name Augustus. Right? Yeah. She's so downtrodden. Yes. She has a very negative uh, self-image. Mm-hmm. Um, and so very low self-esteem, like almost brutally so, which was something that was a little bit off-putting to me in the book because she herself would be so down on her characteristics, mm-hmm. physical, um, yeah. you know, uh, intellectually. And, and it, it, I get, it's, it's true, but it was just sad. And I was like, I don't know if I want to read a book with the heroine that's been this emotionally abused that she almost has no self-worth which is why she lets justin treat her the way that she does so like augustus snape is in here he's being pushy he's i think he proposes marriage or something and she's like i'm already engaged oh yeah in his mind they were like having a flea like a romantic relationship he thought she was chubby i took some flowers and we danced once at an assembly like that was it he assumed because she was chubby quiet plain of she course, do any she will never get anyone better. And she's yeah. like, I'm engaged to Lord Spencer. And then he gets all angry and aggressive and stuff. And what's interesting is she raises her hand. He, like, grabs her on the shoulders or whatever. She raises her hand to, like, try to hit him. And behind him, she sees the portrait of her mother, the frozen stare that seemed to be rebuking her for allowing this scene to get so far beyond the bounds of dignity. So she lowers her arm and she, with her words. She's like, I demand you release me, right? Yeah. But it's so frustrating because yeah. it's like, follow your instincts. You have yes. a right to defend yourself regardless yeah. of what your dead mother says. She's like, dead. no one else is in this room with you. She can't even, she's not there so anymore. So frustrating. It was very frustrating. Yeah, what's she going to do? And irritating you? Yeah. in the book because I felt like you've been on your own for at least three years at this point. And you've had to make decisions. You've had to run an entire household. I like, know. It, I know. I don't know. It, it, that was what I didn't like about her character. It bugged me. We do see throughout the book, too, she has learned to cope through eating and sweets and stuff. She talks about, like, she'll eat things because it makes her feel a little bit better. And so at one point she talks about how Justin will always bring her, like, oh, I brought you your favorite thing in the whole world, and it's like a box of chocolates. Chocolate. And she's like, why does he think this is my favorite this is, thing? That this is the only thing that defines me. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, to you, I'm just some simple, quiet person, and all I care about is sugar and sweets and chocolate and whatever. And that was really frustrating, yeah. too. But it did resonate with me, that element of, like, emotional eating or, yeah. like, self-soothing, because you yes. get the feeling when she was troubled, all she had was tea cakes and sweets and things and her mom wasn't available her dad was absent most of the time or dead or whatever like it was just interesting yeah i thought this book it was uh the only regency to date i've read that looks at food addictions and emotional eating um i think they handled it a little too superficially like i don't think they really went into the drive behind it because it then became like you can you can eat sweets sweets are evil instead of it being like why do you go to this when you're stressed kind yeah. of thing like uh so it was unfortunate because it fell short but i had never read i've never read a regency that kind of delved into some of those addictions like that specifically with food yeah if a character is plump in a regency it's either acknowledged and either found some somehow sexually desirable by the hero, which is re- My relatively favorite. rare, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, a favorite. Or sometimes there's some sort of slimming protocol, which we'll get into in a minute from this book. Yeah. And then sometimes 
it's just they're the side character. No one can ever yeah. love them because they're plump. Exactly. And you're just kind of like, okay. Oh, yeah. But the basic premise becomes Everett is stuck in the country <laughs> because he's hiding from those creditors and stuff. <laughs> Basically, they've gotten engaged. Justin decides he's got to speed off to London so that he can take care of business, which right. essentially just means go get his mistress. Exactly. There's a woman he, he just wants, wants to, to sow more mistress. wild oats because now he's officially And that is engaged. where I w- did not buy that Dust- Justin would have done this. I feel like he would have left, but not the day of his yeah. betrothal dinner. So, yeah, they plan a whole dinner that I believe is being hosted by Everard's aunt. Yeah, her godmother. As the godmother. She's hosting yeah. this dinner to celebrate the betrothal. Well, Justin decides that he needs to go to London. Oh, without telling her to. Exactly. Yeah. Justin decides he needs to go to London. So he writes a quick note to Everard and he's like, I'm I'm basically like, I'm getting in my carriage as I'm writing this. I've got to go. Please explain and take care of Aurelia for me, right? And I'm like, bitch, please. You could have written one sentence that said, must go to London. I'm so sorry. Or you would have stayed through this party and left yes. in the morning. Like, you literally are that horny that you've got to get to London tonight. Yeah. 24 hours to have makes sex that with her. Of a difference. Well, and he didn't even tell Everard he hadn't told Aurelia. Mm-mm. So, because I think Everard would try to have softened it for Aurelia before she shows up to this party expecting to see her fiancé who has left and not yeah. even told her that he's not going to be there. So basically, they're all at the party and except for Aurelia and it's awkward because everybody knows that Everyone Justin's knows. not there and yeah. it's hella awkward but they're just like okay but they're all like well we won't be surprised if Aurelia doesn't even show up because right. who would oh my yeah. gosh i can't believe this right but she does come in and it's actually a really beautiful scene kind of empowering for her right oh my because... gosh it says she had dressed herself with such care for this evening wanting to make Justin proud to claim her as his future bride so she essentially like Let's her hair be really nice dress. She puts a rose in her hair. And even Everard is like... She dresses up whatever her finest is. so pretty. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, wow. And what I love is she walks into the room and he pulls up his quizzing glass and he looks at her. And so she reaches down and she pulls up her own quizzing glass and she looks at him. So adorable. So again, the spark and the power of this, of him being like, I see you and I raise you my own, you know, it's beautiful. And and he wasn't offended by that. He thought that was so cute and endearing. Yes. He he was like, like, there's spark in this girl. There's, there's, he's, he's intrigued by her and has been from the very beginning. And then his aunt swoops in and is like, we can always trust you to do what's right and proper. Only fancy, not attending one own, one's own engagement party. Rag manners. And Aurelia laughs and says, oh no, is Justin being fashionably late? And then the silence, right? Everyone's like, so oh crap. For her. Um, and so she's so embarrassed in the moment, too. Uh, the mom tries to cover up like, well, I'm sure he left a note. And everyone's like, Justin, no, he didn't. But I just, the deflation. I don't know how to yeah. describe it, but like she's so excited. Her witticism worked. Yeah. She's in her element for a minute, and then she's just so dejected. It's like she deflates. She pulls the flower out of her hair. She's just feeling, like, shitty yeah. because her fiancé treated her like shit. Yeah. Um, it's just too sad. It is. It's the one of the first moments where, like, Justin. Which is why I was like, I don't buy it. I don't. He was just a clod pull before. He was insensitive but that's just insulting yeah <laughs> what he did to her but and she... i think he would have respected her enough as his future wife 
to give her that and then tear off to London right after the party. Leave early from the party. But I don't know. It felt it felt beyond Weird. immaturity. Yeah. And like willfully rude rather than just like unthinking. I don't well, know. Well, because the author had not set up Justin to be a jerk. She mm-hmm. hasn't set him up to be a conceited a-hole. Like yeah. she later on in the book, he does a lot of sweet things. Does that make sense? And so yeah. that's why I'm like, you. she wanted to set a scene, but I don't yeah. think it worked with the character she had introduced us to. Yeah. And then what's so sad about it is then Aurelia is thinking to herself, um, again, she reflects on how she dressed with care, and she basically is like, what a simpleton you are, she told herself. Tis not necessary for Justin to make a fool of you. You manage wonderfully all on your own, imagining yourself to be pretty when you know you're not. You don't deserve that Justin should care about you, etc., etc., etc. It makes and it's, me ill. It's awful. But it's Throughout, it's realistic in a way. We yeah. have that negative self-talk, but it's so jarring, foreign. I guess, to see it in writing yeah. like that. And then and be not like, once oh or my twice, gosh, like 25 do times. Do I talk to myself like that? Yeah. Because that is horrific. Yeah, it's Maybe awful. that's why I was having the visceral reaction, because I was like, oh, this is like looking in a mirror. <laughs> my note I wrote about that was, WTF, how awful was her mother? Like, oh. where did these thoughts come from? I really, Her mother was described as being thin and slender all the yeah. time. And so you get this sense that her mom was vain or prideful and just could not accept her daughter looked different and had no idea how to actually love or support her daughter. The other thing that I thought was funny is... There's a scene, there's a lot of times in books where authors will describe a scene and a character doing something. And I always think, did you try doing that yourself to see if the way you described it makes sense? Does this work? Right? Because there's a moment where it says that he leaned against the mantle, a graceful negligence in his pose. And I just remember thinking, like, how? Like, like in which way? And so I'm imagining Amy's mantle, which is a relatively simple, just a bar of wood right above a fireplace. But I'm like, is his arm on the mantle? Because usually they have all of those. Bric-a-brac. Bric-a-brac yeah. up there. Is his yeah. back against the mantle? And then <laughs> But I'm then thinking, you're like, there's a fire going. Exactly. So then I'm thinking, is his butt really warm? <laughs> or is he blocking the fire from the ladies? And so it's always a funny visual moment where I imagine. Yeah. How does that work? So, you know, if you're an author, put those details in. So that Beth will stop having to wonder about it. <laughs> or illustrations. She'll be like lounging against the fireplace or mantle until his butt got too warm. Right. And, and then rotating. Rotate. And then moving somewhere else. <laughs> okay. So basically where we come to is Justin is taken off to London. Everard is stuck here, you know, rusticating. And Justin has already decided to like, yeah, 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 we'll get married in, in yeah. the fall, maybe the spring, Someday. maybe next year. You know, like he, you can I tell did my me. duty. We're engaged. Yeah. At some point, we will set a date and get he married. He does not want to get married. Mm-hmm. So someone makes a comment about Aurelia. I kind of want to say it's the aunt, maybe. And Everard basically says, like, she could be beautiful, stunning, fabulous if, if, if she put any attention into herself, if she put any effort yeah. into herself. And the aunt is like, done, I'll take that wager. <laughs> And um, I thought that was a funny moment because Everard wasn't trying to make a wager, but his aunt is trying so hard to help him, but he won't accept help that she's like, done, it's a wager, a thousand pounds. And you're like, that's a lot of money. I got that impression too, that that you know he won't take a loan. And so she's just looking for any excuse. I always have a really hard time with this 
makeover idea where they mm-hmm. reference she could be beautiful right if she made all these changes she could be stunning and dazzling if she did all of these things he just a few pages ago said how stunning she looked mm-hmm. how she what she had done for herself and yeah. just taking some extra care with her hair and walking in why with confidence isn't that good enough yeah. yeah why isn't the focus on she just lacks confidence she lacks yeah. self-esteem she's an amazing girl and i get that the author was trying to give that impression that he already feels that and knows that but i think that you have to be careful with the vocabulary you use because when you say you could that implies that they are not currently right a beautiful right. or stunning person and th- this is where the book kind of fell apart a little bit for me and then gets a little bit better towards the end yeah um is the whole makeover that i i think that what they did well what the author did well is it's a realistic length of time for the transformation oh, to take yes. place it's months it's not thankfully it's not like a day or two a week weeks, two weeks and she's yeah. suddenly magnificently different but i just yeah it's this whole trope of and it's not just regency novels we grew up where high school stories this was what it was all about the girl takes off her glasses <laughs> lets down her ponytail she's suddenly a gorgeous person yes. the quarterback wants to date yeah. and just that trope of you have to remake someone it just sends the worst message and, and you like, have to remake them in their physical appearance yes not even like Okay, let's talk about says, pursuing your passions or, or yes. bringing forward what's important to you. It's all he about. He says you if look she different. trims down a few pounds, mm-hmm. and and this is the hero that is supposed to love this woman. I just at that point my blood boiled and I was like, I hate this person because I don't. There is a push now for there to be plus size heroines in these books because let's face it, in the Regency period, they were not skinny little. There were all body types. All body types. There's all body types now. Yes. There were probably, yeah, very athletic women that rid horses that were very muscular. Mm -hmm. You know, like, so it was just that irritated me. And then, yeah, this whole idea that she needs to lose weight. Uh, To me, I'm like, why didn't they focus just on building up her confidence? I get the, hey, maybe let's rethink your dresses because they're not doing anything flattering for you. Why couldn't we talk about let's redesign these dresses in a way that's flattering to the body shape that you have, that you were given? They start this campaign of anti-any food, but particularly sweets, that is not healthy for a woman. Oh my goodness. I pretty much realized reading this book, this is where that idea got into my head that eating sweets is evil mm-hmm. in this book because basically they 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 associate that with it at it's almost, slapped out of her hand at if she's almost caught 40 eating it. reading it compared to whatever 16 year old beth i'm like this is really damaging yes but i would i in 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 defense to a smidge at least okay. I wonder, because it was written in 1987, I'm like, was that kind of the mentality of the 80s in the diet world was like super restriction? It's gotta be, because they had the diet right. Our mom went through it. think about when rice cakes were a thing, because all this woman eats on this diet is rice and a cup of vinegar water type of thing. Which is horrible, right? And so like... (laughs) It's it doesn't make any sense because no. you'd think that it would be a place she of, has no nutrients. Where is she getting right? And I always wonder if maybe she eats a fuller like dinner, it was for that, example, just that meal focused that on they were veggies. About. But they talk about her drinking vinegar all the time. And so one of the things that got me is I'm like, this isn't sustainable. No. So really, what you should be talking about is 
moderation. Yeah. Eating smaller portions, maybe not leaning into the sweets. And like Amy was saying, let's talk about your emotions. Why do you eat the sweets or something? Yeah. But at minimum, you think it would be like, okay, you get, you know, no milk in your tea or very little, no sugar in your tea or things like um, one tart, not five one piece of chocolate not 12 like you'd think there'd be some element of we're just doing a reducing diet where we're reducing what you're eating but you're still eating somewhat normally because how is it going to fly if you've been subsisting on rice and vinegar and then you go to a fancy dinner party with all this rich succulent food spoiler alert as a medical student let me just tell you that if you have not been eating a bunch of fatty type things people die if you've not been eating a bunch of fatty type things and then you go to a ball, for example, and you eat lobster patties or this or that, like you're going to feel uncomfortable. It's not like your body just immediately can digest it. It's not used to those fats or whatever. And so, yeah, it, I wrote it in big letters, stupid diet, rice and vinegar. Why crazy? Like, why is it such a crazy, obsessive, restricted thing? And then I put Mad Beth with a frowny face. Yeah. I was so mad. And and I think what frustrated me the most about it was this isn't about building up this woman's confidence in who no. she is. Mm-hmm. This was reinforcing all of her bad self-recriminations yeah, yeah. and thoughts by saying, you're right. You are too fat. You it do is need because to lose of the weight. sugar. It is just because my Don't eat that willpower chocolate. isn't enough or whatever. I was like, I'm sorry. Okay, she ate a box of chocolate one day. They don't give the impression that this woman is sitting around eating chocolates every single day. No, no. And so I'm telling you, the scenes where he literally hit things out of her hand, I hated it. I thought that was a horrible message to send. Well, and what's funny is they play it for laughs almost. And so basically the idea is... He he's right there with her, spending all this time together. Which I wish we spent more time of them getting to know each other. Yeah, this, with the transformation. It's basically over the winter. Basically, Justin decides we'll get married at the end of the summer, type of thing, like like next summer. And so yeah. Justin's gone for the winter months, and Everard and Aurelia are working for months on this diet, and he encourages her to go for walks and things like yeah. that. But because um, Aurelia is going to make her debut in the season that's yeah, coming up. Yeah. They're going to go to the season. She's going to have her official debut, and then they'll get married at the end of that season. That's, like, the plan or whatever. And so the reason I say they play it for laughs is the idea is um, eventually it starts to feel to Aurelia that every time she tries to eat something sweet, Everard pops up all of a sudden. Suddenly he's there. Yeah. Um, And so it becomes, like, that kind of jokey thing to where – she gets a gingerbread man from one of her tenants that she went to visit, and it's out in the middle of nowhere, and he manages to row up in a boat, a boat coincidentally, on the lake, and, yeah. and she tries to hide it, and he's like, what's that, or whatever, and so it's kind of a funny moment, but what Amy's saying, that like damaging part of it is though she's not allowed after months of discipline to have a bite of gingerbread like that's ridiculous of course she can i know know? he literally fishes out of her pocket by force and throws it into the lake Mm -hmm. and then proceeds to reprimand her like you're undoing all of the good i did for you and i'm like this emotional you're causing emotional Uh damage more than you're helping the physical mom did it was I thought it was horrific. I just, I had a really hard time buying into the romance after that because I, I thought he was so great in the beginning because he was intrigued with her. He thought yeah. she was funny. He thought she was pretty in the beginning. And then all of a sudden it just got about her weight and her physical, it really got about her weight. And that's, I think what irritated me is because 
if they had just said, we're going to slim you down and then never mention it again and she could have gingerbread or she could have a chocolate here and there, wouldn't have thought two things about it. But in this book, the author associates eating sweets with being fat. Being fat. And being fat with being ugly. Yes. And and I'm like, you're right, probably because it was written in the 80s. We know that, you know, our mom struggled with body images because of the era she grew up in. Thank goodness ours is a little bit better. <laughs> we understand bit more, more body about psychology yes, and how. And so uh, I'm glad that the stories now, at least I don't read them <laughs> if they're like that, because yeah. I like the ones that focus more on, I don't mind a makeover story, but they rarely are like, we're going to make you lose weight and slim it's you more down. Like, and be yourself. Yeah. Be authentic. You need confidence. You. Yeah. yeah. And whatever and whatever that is. And it's been with women who are like flat chested and skinny. And it's been with women who are very tall. You know, so I like you said, I like that they have more body shapes now. Well, and one of the things we missed out on because so much focus is on the weight loss aspect is for example, there's a fun scene where a dancing comes up. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, I'm, you know, I, I'm not very good at dancing. I'm awkward, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, let's just try. And so they have, you know, of course, a romantic scene where they waltz and it's, they suddenly she magical. feels effortless, whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's magical. And, and so there's a scene shortly after that where, um, Aurelia is reflecting on Everard and it says, his gaze took on that penetrating quality that Aurelia found so unsettling. She barely knew this man, harbored mixed feelings about him at best, and yet he seemed to slip past her barricades of feigned good humor with ease, wandering down the secret paths of her mind where she per- permitted entry to no one. So there's an implication there, at least, that they're having some level of conversation. They're getting to know each other, and she's feeling a little bit of like, I can be honest, I can yeah. talk to this man, whatever. And then it's so frustrating because we don't actually get to see no, very much of that. We got to see little bits, and then it's all about so all we see weight loss, harping. no sweets. Yeah, yes, nagging on her. on her and everything. And I think that, like you said with the exercising, if the losing the pounds had been a natural byproduct of him taking her out on the walks, mm-hmm. which she will talk about, they would go on walks and he would force her to like go up that hill. Right. That to me was endearing. Yeah. The waltzing, the dancing. And then if suddenly she puts on her clothes and she's like, oh my goodness, oh, right? wow. That would have been a hundred times better in this book. Even if the only restriction was cut down on the sweets. Yes. And try to just be mindful of what you're eating and maybe eat slightly less of that meal or leave a little on your plate. It would have made more balanced sense. It just was so extreme. So extreme. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but her body is getting effed up by this diet. That she's not going to be slender forever because she can't subsist on rice and vinegar forever. Like, she has to eat real foods again. Yes. And that's frustrating. And you thought she was beautiful or at least pretty before. yeah. So I don't understand why he all of a sudden did an about turn and was so obsessed with her weight. It just didn't make sense to me. It I was like became this, a challenge, maybe that like maybe. sartorial challenge where he, you it's know. It's almost like he's like, you said you want Justin, so you got to do all this to earn Justin. And I'm like, why don't you just admit Justin doesn't deserve her and she shouldn't have to do anything for this guy that oh. abandoned her to go set up a mistress in London. Yeah. I, I just, it just wasn't believable. Well, the other part, just one last comment on the diet thing yeah. and I promise we'll move on. <laughs> because As you can was, tell we were really upset. Oh my gosh. But the other frustrating thing is, so there's a there's a scene where they're sitting at the dinner table. I think it's the day of the dancing lesson. Mm-hmm. Or not the dinner, the breakfast table. And Effie, the the companion, is eating like buttered muffins or whatever oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, with honey or marbling. And you're yeah. like, okay, whatever, that's Effie. Yeah. But then Everard's there too. And it says that 
There's a glum silence. Aurelia is sitting with her bowl of rice and her cup of vinegar. And she looks over to Everard. And he's got like a plate mounded with ham mounded. and sausages and whatever. Yeah, and how I'm just rude like, is that? You'd think that he would have eaten In on solidarity. his own. Or he, you know, or he yeah. would be eating with her and be like, yeah. no, of course we can do this. And so again... It doesn't make sense. If it was a balance, but eat less, it would have been like, no, let's have lesser portions, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It makes more sense. So poor Susan Carroll, I hope you weren't told this was a good Word. diet. And so you're right. It's because it was 1987. It had to have been. like it was Diet just... rice and rice cakes. Mm-hmm. Like this was the Regency equivalent of diet rice mm-hmm. and rice cakes. Exactly. Yep. So as we were talking about Aurelia's perspective on herself and what's so baffling is Everard seems to be leaning into the same thought process of us of her mother that beauty is being slender yeah. and agile and whatever but it's frustrating a little bit because they have a moment where they share a laugh while they're doing this dancing thing and she talks about the cynical lines of his face relaxing he's gentled by his smile blah 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 you know and it says Aurelia's breath caught in her throat because he's looking at her. He looks at her without the bored mask of indifference. And he looks at her as if it mattered not whether she were beautiful. Because twas enough that he made her feel as if she were. And it's such a bizarre statement to me. Because on the one hand, it's like she's saying, it doesn't matter if I'm beautiful. Um, he makes me feel like I'm beautiful. But inherent in that is still something of like, but nobody else would ever think you're beautiful. I know. It's, it's just baffling. I, I can't quite tell... If Aurelia ever, and I mean throughout the whole book, ever actually reaches a point of feeling truly confident in herself and in her worth, separate from suddenly now being slender and seen as beautiful by everybody else. And I maybe, maybe at the very, very end, which we'll get to. The last page. A glimmer, maybe, but disappointingly not very often or not very much. So No. To me... I don't think she really did. The, the The author wrote it as if she had by the end of the book, but I don't buy it. So as the plot progresses, months have passed. Uh, after they had that experience waltzing, which was beautiful for them, you could tell from the experience they both felt something. Everard started to feel something. Well, he starts to feel feelings for his good friend's betrothed. So he backs off. And so there's actually kind of a sad reflection where Aurelia is like, Basically, like, what the heck? I thought we were friends. You know what I mean? Like, what did I do to offend you? Yeah, why has he abandoned me? me? And so then they end up meeting one more time right shortly before they're about to go to London because finally Justin was like, okay, come on to London and we'll have the season or whatever. And I thought this was a sweet scene because she's feeling kind of down. Everard shows up. And she's like, yeah, we're going to go to London and blah, blah, blah when we were there. And Everard's like, yeah, I'm not going to London. I'm staying here. And she's like, what? And basically she convinces them to go to London because she's like, yeah. I need you. Like, I can't do this without you. You're the only reason I've ever made it this far in feeling any confidence or whatever. You know, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> um, and I thought it was sweet because what we know as the reader is that Everard had gotten bad news, that his ship had definitely sunk. The last time it was seen, it was floundering off the coast of Brazil or whatever. So... It's pretty much lost. And his solicitor says in a letter, don't come to London or they might issue a warrant for you. And so it's kind of sweet, although highly irresponsible, (laughs) that he agrees to go with her. This is the point where he should have taken the loan so that he could go to London. Pay off those pressing debts and then go to London. But he decides to just go anyway. He just rips up the letter and throws it in the lake and out of sight, out of mind. So we're going to London. Um, 
and we're going to take all the new fancy clothes that had been ordered from London because this is where Everard was like, yeah, I'm not letting these local people keep scamming you and throwing everything in the kitchen sink on your dresses. Simple lines. But was that the most practical? I'm going to order all these clothes on London. They're going to make it in London. They're going to send them to me here in the country so I can pack them up and take them to London. No, it was a terrible plan. (laughs) But this is the guy that has warrants being sworn out for his arrest and he's going to London anyway. Okay, so maybe Everard's a little bit of a dum-dum too. These people don't think logically. That made no sense because she could have shown up at London and done all the fittings there and gotten the clothes there. You know what I mean? I didn't understand why it was like, I've ordered all these clothes and then now you just pack them up in tissue and take them on a big long journey to London. Right? I think the only reason it makes sense is because of what happens in London. Okay. So we're in London. Again, we're at Lady Foxcliffe. That's um, Everard's aunt. We're at her house because as godmother, she's sponsoring... Uh, Aurelia's come out come out yeah and so basically she's been in London I don't know a few days at least a week or whatever Justin still has never come by to say anything but the first time she's going to see Justin is they're going to a big ball so she gets all fancied up in her pretty dress when Justin arrives it's just Everard and the aunt downstairs right uh waiting for Aurelia to come down and she comes into the doorway of the drawing room you can, you can imagine, radiant, slender, beautiful, all the things that were so important from this rice and vinegar diet. And Everard is kind of like struck of like how beautiful she is and stuff. And this is what I think is the jump the shark moment. Like the corniest, dorkiest scene to me is this. Because Aurelia doesn't even notice Justin at first because her eyes yeah. are on Ev. She wants his approval. They've been yeah. working together as friends this whole time to make this happen. She wants him to say she looks nice. Yeah. And Justin basically turns around, sees this stunning woman, and is like, have you got to introduce me to that girl? Who have you been holding out on me? Who's that? And I'm like, she would not have changed that much. Seriously? She has the same color Fundamentally, hair. Like, she looks the same. When you yes. lose weight, when you're a little chubby, your entire face does not change. Because we're not even talking she lost This is someone pounds. who's known her what, her whole pounds, like, life. On. Yeah, she was plump. She wasn't, you know, morbidly obese. Even when you're morbidly obese and you lose that amount of weight, someone who knew you your entire life would not suddenly say, who's this person? Introduce me. Right. It was supposed to be a funny moment, but... Ev has to, like, step on his foot and be like, you know... It it was just dorky. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, of course, Justin's like, hubba hubba. And then suddenly he's like, oh, this is my woman, and puts his arm around her waist and this and that, which, true true to character probably for Justin being a little bit oblivious that way, but frustrating because... Beautiful woman. He doesn't care. Now he's all excited He's still steamrolling over her. He's still not ever listening to her or talking to her. He's just... Yeah. Being Justin. (laughs) But I do think he comes into his own by the end of the book. Oh, yes. By the end, you're like, oh, I do like Because Justin, I think he but... is actually the one mature enough to be like, well, it's about time you two admitted you had feelings for each other. Yeah. And, like, kissing you was like kissing my sister. Like, he almost becomes more self-aware by the end of the book than Everard and Aurelia. It's such a bizarre love story because it's almost like we're supposed to believe that for Aurelia, things start coming around because F saw me as a real me. I'm like, well, no, he didn't. Kind of. But then he liked you he better He changed everything skinny. about you. Oh, but he did that because he thought that's what you wanted because you wanted to capture Justin's attention. Right. But a true friend would have been like, Justin doesn't deserve you. Just be your own beautiful. And Everard was like attracted to her wit and stuff and she intrigued him and stuff. But then also 
when she was like, I need you. Ev was like, that's the first time anyone's ever said that to me. And so yeah. you kind of get that sense, oh, he likes being seen as someone valuable who's yeah. needed or whatever. But you never really get the sense that they they know each other exactly because we don't get to see it as a no. reader. It's all taking place in all these months we weren't that weren't described yeah. to us. We only get to see them interact truly like 12 times. Exactly. And then by the time we're supposed to buy into the fact that they both are in love and have feelings for each other, they fall into the trope I hate of like, but I need to protect that other person because they love someone else and I don't want to destroy their happiness by burdening them with my feelings. Oh, yeah. Because at the very beginning of the book, um, when Everard was forced to wander the drawing room because he hadn't been invited to sit down, he had picked up a book of Lord Byron's poems. He opens the cover of the book and it says, Aurelia Sinclair loves Justin Spencer or something. And so he really thought that Aurelia had these strong feelings, that she really loved Justin. And he doesn't realize that it was like puppy love, if even that. Even though, I mean, let's be honest, Justin doesn't deserve her. I will buy it Mm. from Everard's perspective in the sense that he feels like he has nothing to give her he's in he's in done in, you know a threat of going to debtor's prison yeah so like in his mind he's like i'm not going to destroy her life saying yeah. throw in your lot with me i'm poor i can't support a wife so i actually take it back and understand it from his perspective i don't get it from aurelia's like justin has given you no consideration you know he does not love you. Yeah. Why aren't you being honest about your feelings and sharing those with Everard? I don't understand why she feels the need to stay silent about how she's feeling. I, I don't know. I agree. The only other thing I can imagine is if it has to do with her being so downtrodden that oh, she just never has any confidence to speak her mind. Or is it the I can't break an engagement because it's been promised since we were young? There's I a bizarre know. sense in her of just like... Okay, I, I guess, guess I'm you engaged. said it. I guess Go I with the safe. Going with the, yeah. It's safe. Putting herself out there, expressing her love to Everard would be scary. And maybe, I think maybe yeah. early on you said she just follows the safe path. So then, like, our plot spins forward and oh, time is we passing. we have to talk about all the stupid. Well, only Snape in, and... only vaguely we will. <laughs> yeah. Because I was like, it, no, too much. This story for me. focused so much on essentially three people Justin, Ev, Aurelia, mostly Aurelia and Everard, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden at the end, there were like six other characters. It's like the author was like, we got to have a villain. I've gotten right? this far and there's no villain. Oh, yeah. I remember. Snape. Remember? I, remember I wrote this guy. Shoot. It's Snape. Yeah. It's oh, let's, wait, wait, wait. Then he's got a mistress. Well, she's got to be mean because mistresses are always mean. Right? She's got to have nefarious intentions like Trope City. Here we come. So basically, over time, you get the impression that Justin wants to, like, make out with Aurelia now. Or he wants to take her on drives and stuff. But she's not enjoying herself. Yeah. And he's not enjoying he's not himself. Really, you get that impression, too. He's not it. And he's then, oh, it's like over degrading the superficial. over time. Yeah. yeah. Once they're like, wow, you're so beautiful. She does not care for all his flowery no. speeches. And he doesn't know what to say other than that. Because all he knows what to do is give flowery speeches to beautiful and women. And so then There's he no stops coming depth. as often. Yeah. Right? But he sends her trinkets. All of the trinkets are chocolates and candy and stuff. And there's a funny moment where she's like, oh, my gosh, is this all he knows about yeah. me or whatever? She basically realizes she's no dummy. She realizes he's spending time with other women and she's like yeah. back to the negative self-talk. Yeah. Because she's thinking, why did I ever think that he loved me? I just dazzled him for a minute. I was the pretty new thing for a minute, the sparkly toy. Yeah. And now it's back to how it was. But she's also hurting because Ev has stopped coming around as much. Who she really honestly cares about and more than Justin. Right? Yeah. The reason he's not coming around, we know, is because he's feeling feelings and he doesn't want to betray his friend. 
by, you know, hitting on his betrothed. But then also, uh, she finds out that the news was wrong. The albatross did come in. So, of course, in this classic Regency trope, now he's suddenly rich as Midas. Well, and that, and remember how to escape he was going to the gaming tables. But then he couldn't lose. So apart from this miraculous fortune that came in from his Mm -hmm. investment, he's been raking it in at the gaming tables. So now he's like wealthier than Justin at this point. That was a pretty funny joke. I actually thought where um, there's a wry moment later where basically he's like, she gets mad at him at one point and she's like, well, you spent plenty of time at the gaming tables type (laughs) of thing. And he's, uh, you know, risking your money. And he's like, well, the irony is now apparently I can't lose <laughs> and I don't even need it. But he's just been trying to avoid her. Yeah. He's been going to gaming hills just to stay away from her because he doesn't want to mess up their betrothal. Yeah. Well, long story short, I will tell you about the scene for this okay. reason. It's one of those things where this is why the book is called The Sugar Rose. <laughs> Allegedly, Aurelia liked roses. That comes up as a total It was her favorite flower. Thing. She mentioned right? it in passing. In passing, That's her right? favorite flower. So yeah. Justin, as an apology for being gone, sends her another box of treats. But instead of chocolates this time, it's this ornate, intricately made rose fashioned out of sugar. Right? Which does not seem appetizing or appealing. It me. sounds pretty, but yeah. yeah, why would I want to eat that? It's but not like, chocolate. Okay. What's the point? But she's sitting there, and she's basically dejected, and she's sitting in her chair, and she's like, you know, in the past... If this were to happen and I was tempted to eat one of these flowers or one of the petals off of this flower, like Everard would just appear. And so she lets herself close her eyes and imagine, imagine. the avenging angel of Everard. Almost like affectionately. Her. Right. Like I want to draw him forth. Right. And then she hears footsteps and her eyes pop open and she's like, you've got to be kidding me. Right. <laughs> and so, of course, there's Everard. He finally came to visit and he came because she had skipped some party and he was worried or, or whatever. And so then she's like trying to taunt him like, OK, I'm going to eat it. And he finally is like, dude, I don't care. I'm not your babysitter. If you eat it or don't, I don't care. Um, and so she eats it. And, and I do love this part of it where over time she's been like. I'm not enjoying this. Yeah. So she's at least starting to recognize it's only the emotional reason I'm even eating these. I'm not enjoying eating all the sugar and stuff. So she defiantly eats some and then, I don't remember why, but for some reason he dashes it out of her hands and they end up having some passionate kiss or whatever. And she realizes, oh, I do like kissing because he's the one I love. Another trope from Regency's. Kissing's no fun unless you're the hero. It's a prerequisite to fall in love. They have to be a good kisser. And, and everybody that. else's kisses will be meh. Yeah. Until you it's your anything. one true love. Yeah. yeah. I actually like the authors that they'll have another love interest and they'll they'll reference that the kiss is at least pleasant. They're like, like oh, that was good, nice. Like they feel some yeah. tingles. Because that's more realistic than saying only your true love's kiss will move you in any way. Right. So the little bit of character development we get from Aurelia is, is, is in these scenes. And essentially they kiss and he's kind of like, yeah. We shouldn't have done that or whatever. And then he leaves. And so there is a moment, too, where she says um, she realizes she loves Everard Ramsey, essentially. And she says it wasn't just the kiss. um, It wasn't just like waltzing. It was all of it. It was the scolding, the badgering, the caring that had forced her to bring forth the best in herself. The shared laughter, the moments of companionable silence where there had been no needs for words. And so she's like, she discovered she had betrothed herself to the wrong man. And so it's a a beautiful sort of self-reflection moment, but you're kind of like, okay, but I wish we had seen you feeling these things months ago. Through the transition. Exactly. Which is why it felt like the transition was more just forced criticism to get you to change rather than you deciding you wanted to be your best person 
but not for Justin for yourself. Right. Like, if she had been like, oh, I wish I could lose these extra pounds. Anything that was motivated from her own self, I it would have been so better. The story would have been way better for me. Right. But uh, to me, I'm like, ugh, I don't know. I just, the badgering felt so cruel. The scenes we saw of him badgering her didn't seem seemed loving. overly cruel. They seemed mean. Yes. Yeah. And which was not in character with the Everard we met I in know. the beginning of the book, who saved her with the embroidery. He's kind of like an example of a hero that, like, didn't quite get there, you didn't know? develop, yeah. Exactly. So close. The potential was so yeah. good. And then it didn't develop. So let me just wind up very rapidly what kind of happens <laughs> at the end, and then we'll discuss our last thoughts. So essentially, they go to Vauxhall, right? Yeah. And they're... While they're there, Augustus Snape has, is in cahoots with the mistress, and they're going to somehow destroy this betrothal because the mistress is stupid enough to think that magically that means Justin will come back to her. Well, honey, you gave it out for free, so of course he's not going to marry you. They're, they're sitting at a table, and by they I mean Justin and Aurelia. They're on a date, if you will, and they're having the worst date. They're bickering, they're hardly talking, they're not enjoying each other, and Lady Foxcliffe dragged Everard there to basically... She's caught on to the fact that they these two love each other. So she kind of like forces their way into this party. And then she drags Justin off someone to make Evan and Aurelia talk and things like that. Long story short, uh, Justin ends up being waylaid by his mistress. Her name is Sylvie. And she throws herself at him as like trying to make out all over him and stuff. And Aurelia sees it. And Everard is afraid that Aurelia is like heartbroken. But instead Aurelia... Is kind of just like, oh, well, yeah, I, I don't care. Right. You know what I mean? And so in that moment, it's actually kind of nice because it helps her realize, like, I legitimately don't, don't love care. Justin. I don't yeah. love Justin. He can do whatever. Yeah. I love Everard. Like, yeah. I don't know if that is going to turn into anything, but I know I will not I marry Justin. Marry. Yeah. And so I do love that regardless, she, she doesn't know Everard loves her and all of yeah. that yet, but she's willing to go and break off the patrol and be like, I don't care. Yeah. We're still friends, but we, yes, cannot, be we cannot be married. And I love it because Justin is kind of like. Feels the same way. He does. And he's kind of yeah. like, because you love Ev, right? Yeah. Like, it's about time you guys kind of acknowledge right. this to each other. You yes. knew? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> and you're like, yes, you are. But he. Uh, you at least have some self-awareness. Yeah. Or, sorry, some awareness outside of yourself. And so there's stupid hijinks. There's a duel. There's... Which is so dumb because somehow she convinces the guy not to do the duel with Everard because he's killed all these other people with a pistol, even Which though it's well known it. Everard all... is horrible at pistols. Yeah. But somehow... I mean, you can read the last 50 or so pages uh, of a con. It was ridiculous. But... It was so anticlimactic, like not necessary. So the duel doesn't happen. Yay. Yeah. Everyone's safe. But then the funny part of that, I did find it funny that as... As last resort, she had also told oh. the police that a duel was happening <laughs> so, so that the police, arrested. the constables, would break it up. And so, yeah, yeah Ev and Justin get arrested. And she sheepishly com- uh, confesses that to Lady Foxcliffe. And Lady Foxcliffe just laughs and laughs. Yeah. It's the funniest prank. Well, even Everard isn't upset about it because he's so yeah. over the moon that she cared enough. 
Yeah. Because I think Justin had told him that she's in love with him and yeah, stuff. Yeah, after and the so... duel gets broken up, Justin is like, basically like, you idiot, she loves you. She she broke off the engagement. Yeah. Um. So that was really cute. And then there's some other stupid thing where Sylvie, Sylvie the mistress, comes back. I don't understand why she thinks she's a mistress. Why she thinks he will marry her if she so breaks like, up their relationship. She's Lady Sylvie Fitzhurst. She's like a widow or something. Maybe, but like, yeah, it's so stupid. Like you, they already slept it's, together. We know again, that because this book feels very young adult high school. She's mm-hmm. supposed to be the mean girl. She's the head cheerleader who I guess doesn't like another beautiful girl coming in and taking away attention. But it would have made so much more sense if male. she hadn't slept with Justin. The fact that they had been intimate to me is like, you're not going to get married. No, you're not. You've already been his mistress. Why do you have to be evil? Why can't it be that Justin maybe really does actually like you? And then maybe that's who he ends up marrying. Why right? can't that just be the way the story because goes? Like, we had to go into Trope City. And Trope yeah. City requires a mean girl. They exist, even in the Regency period. She's the head cheerleader. Well, in true... Um, Hashtag not all cheerleaders are bitches. <laughs> in true high school fashion, though, what's funny is... She basically is like, she had found out, Sylvie had found out about the wager, and she's coming to be like, well, he just did it for a wager or whatever. And there is a little bit of backbone in Aurelia. Finally, she was just like, you know what? I don't care. She like smushes a tart in her face or something stupid like that. There's backbone for herself, but she humiliates Everard in front of this evil woman who she... Oh my gosh! That I totally happened before him. the tart. She oh literally gosh. was took this woman's word, who is an evil, spiteful woman, mm-hmm. who she barely knows. She's met her like three times. Met maybe? her like three times, yeah. and this is where I'm telling she, all of the good that the author did to give this woman self worth was destroyed because. In a split second, she's like, oh, yep, it must have just been a wager. He doesn't love me. I'm not worth it. And then she is rude in front of Sylvie. Sylvie's watching this. Yeah. And she annihilates Everard. Allegedly, Everard's her best friend, and she won't even let him explain. She just Does it even crazy. matter if you loved him because he pushed you to be a better person? You knew he had no money. I know. You knew he had no money. Does it matter if what started him doing it was a wager? She right. won't even let him explain. And I hate yeah. that in books. That's like, true. And she did it. I think what really set me off is she did it in front of the other lady. Yeah. And so then when she did the whole tart in her face, I was like, okay. But You'll now be lucky I was if Everard takes you back. Yeah, exactly. I was like, okay, but you've missed out on the best person in your life. Um, but I will tell you that Justin saving the day, being the one that oh. sends Everard after her. Okay, so this is funny. Basically, yeah. Aurelia leaves London. She realizes she made a mistake. Yeah. So she's like, I've effed it up with. So she's like, Everard. I'm going home. I don't yeah. love London. I'm going home. And so she leaves, and Justin's like, wait, what about Evan? She's like, I don't care. Well, what tell am I him whatever to tell you want. Him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, tell him whatever you want. <laughs> and Justin's like, what? Mm. And then he's like, wait, okay. <laughs> you, like a light bulb, would have gone off. say, I can't gone tell off him over his head. things. Yeah. And so it is kind of cute, because basically, he knows that they just love each other and need to talk it out. And so to get Everard to follow Aurelia, he basically says... Oh my gosh, Everard, you've got to go after her. Wait, what? Why? And he's like, she's run off with Snape. Which, what? No, <laughs> would why make would she no logical do that? sense. And Justin's like, uh, that's how she got, got him on. to cancel the, the duel. duel. <laughs> like, 
Then he really thought on his She committed to marry him. And so, of course, Everard in the minute is like, nah, she can never marry him. But wait. And he even is like, well, wait, it's not going to happen immediately. Oh, um, they said something about a special license. <laughs> oh, no, it could happen. And so that moment is actually pretty funny. And then Everard goes charging off to catch up with Aurelia. And then Justin has that moment of, did I do the right thing? Is that maybe a bad idea? It'll all work out. That was hilarious to me. But here's what's so funny. So Everard goes to their hometown because Justin was like, oh, they went to Aldgate because you know Aurelia would never get married at Gretna Green. They have a special license, whatever. So he goes to the chapel there in their hometown and he's like, stop, I object type of thing. And it's not a wedding, it's a christening. (laughs) And so we find out that Justin's sister had finally had her baby and Aurelia is set to be godmother of this baby. Um, And so he interrupts the christening. And what I just realized literally in this moment is like, wait, Justin didn't even bother to go to his own like no. nephew's christening or whatever. He's so self-centered. It's so funny. But Everard, the best part is that he's all disheveled. He's obviously been through a hellish right, day or two yeah. or however long it took him to travel there. Because, you know, he's a dandy. So he's yeah. always very well kept. Always pristine. And he shows up and he's just a mess. Disheveled and sweaty and everything. And then they finally have their true words of love. They yeah. reconcile. They kiss or whatever. And heading off into the sunset. They hop into the pony cart to drive away or whatever. And they accidentally knock over his valise or whatever, his little suitcase. And it pops open. And all that's in there is like a dozen cravats and a deck of playing cards. cards. <laughs> and she's like, what the heck? And he goes, well, I packed in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, and so I do cute. love that visual. But, but yeah, I guess that kind of sums up that there was so much potential and so yes. much chemistry that could have been there and then it focused on all the wrong things and it just kept kind of missing yeah the opportunity to be great yes i agree it was kind of damaging it was and it is i truly think it's a different in our perspectives reading it as a teenager where we are in high school and it is a very high school drama story and Mm -hmm. book as opposed to a mature woman who's been in an established relationship for many years and and we know what's important in a partner now than we did when we were 15. Yeah, and one thing we were talking a little bit about it the other day was how it's fascinating. So Brighton Road and Sugar Rose are in the same paperback by Susan Carroll. And we loved Brighton Road. Like yeah. it held up the hijinks and the romp and all of the things kind of held up. And this one, because it had such a significant part of the story focused on the weight loss and, and, and all her. of that, it just kind of lost its its charm a little bit and it just yeah. doesn't hold up as well. But. Well, and I realized really how damaging and sad all of those make out, make, make out, make, make over type stories are, whether it's current day, whether it's a Regency, it just really sends a wrong message yeah. that to be of value, to be seen by your fellow man, you have to change yourself into whatever the norm or the society standards say is beautiful or is acceptable. And yeah. it made me sad. It really yeah. made me sad. And so I don't think I'll ever read this book again. <laughs> right. I have read it dozens of times, um, at least a dozen times, I would say, in my life. I'm not sure I would read it again now that I really, really remember the <laughs> right? plot. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I remember loving it, and that's why I was excited to read it again. Yeah. But I don't, and I don't think I'd recommend it to 
at least not do impressionable, mm-hmm. not to my nieces. Yeah, this would mm-hmm. be, oh, you're older like me? Okay, sure. Go ahead and read it's this. It's got some questions. How's your self-esteem <laughs> and self-worth, though? Okay, here you go. How, you, how was your thoughts on dieting? And, and food addiction and, and, you know, emotional, emotional eating. eating. Yeah. Are, you, are you in a safe place with that? Okay, yeah. go ahead and read this book. But, I mean, I still do like Susan Carroll, so I would read other books by her. Yeah. There's a couple more I have that I do reread often, and there's actually two or three out there that I know exist, and I've never been able to find. So if I ever get them, I will definitely pursue other books by her, but I don't think I'll come back to The Sugar Rose again. Join us next time for our review of 10 Things I Love About You by Julia Quinn. As always, questions, comments, or suggestions, you can send us an email snarkysisterspodcast at gmail.com.